Hello, and welcome to the Tommyknocker Tapes. My name is Michael Bouchard, and I'll be your host. Today on the podcast, I have John Moore. Now, John Moore is an award-winning arts journalist who is currently working as the Denver Center for the Performing Arts Senior Arts Journalist. He's also the founder of the Denver Actors Fund, which is a nonprofit that raises money for local artists in medical need, and was also one of the creators of Denver's Underground Music Showcase. But today I'll be talking with him about his time at the Denver Post, working as its main theater critic. Now, he was named one of the 12 most influential theater critics in the U.S. by American Theater Magazine. He also created the Ovation Awards and even branched his outreach to high schools with his Standing O program. Now, for those of you who don't like your critics or you distrust them or you don't understand their process or their intentions, I think this would be a really great podcast for you to listen to as John goes through in depth what his process is and what it's like. Uh, so without further ado, here's John Moore. All right. I am here with John Moore. Hi, John. Hello, Michael Bouchard. <laughs> How are you today? I'm very well. I'm so glad you've agreed to be on the other side of the interview. I'm going to see how you do uh, sitting across the table from me with a water bottle full of vodka. <laughs> um, you'd, be Im- uh, you'd be impressed. Um, I spent a lifetime in theater, and I'm doing it the British way, British model. <laughs> nice. Nice. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I want to dive in by asking a question kind of near and dear to my heart. Um, when I started this podcast, there was a lot of death talk in theater, so I sort of asked that. Mm-hmm. But now I'm more interested in whether or not theater is, has remained a, a vital presence in American culture. Is it, um, has it been kind of nudged out by television movies, and now it's just you know rich people that get to go see theater and nobody else, and it doesn't matter anymore? Do you think theater is, still remains um, vital in our culture? Well, I do think it remains vital. I, I have come to the conclusion that I don't think it's as socioeconomic as we've made it out to be over the years, that people who are drawn to theater tend to find theater. Mm-hmm. And I've interviewed people for 15 years now who have come from very poor and diverse backgrounds, and theater has saved their lives. Mm-hmm. And, and also people of privilege who have, who have been introduced to it at a, at a younger life. I just think that it will always be a fringe art. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you can even talk about theater in terms of comparing it to how many people go see movies and how many people watch TV because they're the same people. It's just how many of those people also have worked theater into their lives. And I think it's I, th- I think it's a relatively small piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that the size of that pie has changed appreciably. I know there's great fear right now that uh, because of our need for multiple types of stimulation at, at, at any given time that theater is becoming... You know, dated, but I just have a lot more faith in the long-term prospects of it. Oh, good. Um, you probably wouldn't have thought that out of I, I, I wasn't going to guess, but <laughs> I don't want to assume. I'm not the cynical guy people think I am. <laughs> I have joy and positivity in my life. Um, <laughs> feel, free, feel free to comment. <laughs> Thank you. You needed to get that out. I totally had to get that out. All right. So... Back in your past life as um, critic for the Denver Post, yes. what was the thing that you focused on uh, as a critic when you're coming and sitting down to see a show? I mean, basically, I'm kind of just asking you, what did you do? Um, a lot of actors probably don't understand what that process is. Right, and I, and I just want to qualify this by saying I used to think of, of reviewing shows as about 35% of my job. Yeah. You know, I, I took a great deal of pride in the fact that I would review about 160 plays a year to the detriment of my own personal life. But I thought, if you're the theater critic at the Denver Post, and you're covering Colorado, and you've got 120 theater companies, I tried to get to as many theater companies as I could throughout the course of the year. 
but people tend to th- remember you as a theater critic, and I just thought that the job was so much bigger. Mm-hmm. The opportunity to do things online, the opportunity to write the news of the beat, the, the interviews and the profiles, and people would always fixate on the reviews, and, I, and sometimes I would just sit there and kind of go, it's really a relatively small proportion of the, of the job if it's done right. Hmm. However, that's not your question. No, but that's good to know. Well, when, so when you go into you know when you go into theater, I um, I think my my process evolved over time. I mean, mm-hmm. when I first started and I was unsure of myself, I mostly felt like I needed to do hours, if not days, of research in front of a play. I, if it was a new play, I felt like I should read it first. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of concerns. One was after a time, I was. I was wondering if I was setting myself up to necessarily have a different kind of experience than the person sitting next to me. Mm-hmm. And and after a while I came to the conclusion that it's that it's much better if I go into the the process on pretty much of an even playing field with other members of the audience. However, that said, I also feel like there are a lot of people, especially for more difficult theater, who are looking to the reviews to help them to sort of interpret and understand the experience that they just went through, specifically mm-hmm. if it was maybe experimental theater, you know. So I went into a, I went into different shows with different purposes. Mm-hmm. If it were a, a classic, mm-hmm. um, if you're going to go see a Christmas Carol with Michael Bouchard at the Denver Center, <laughs> the the presumption is that you know you, you don't want to have you know set yourself up to have an appreciably different experience than than the person next to you. You just want to go and you kind of want to see is this working on the audience or we're all in this together. Right. If it's a different kind of show, if it's a new play, if it's an experimental play, I think it's one of the great services that you can have as a reviewer is to is to do your research, do your interviews if you have to, find out everything you can find out about that play so that when somebody walks out of a play and says, what the hell did I just see? Right. They, they look to a review not only for a thumbs up or a thumbs down, but to help them understand it better. And if you understand some of the literary roots or if you've done your work on it and you might be able to explain to somebody what part of that play meant, they might have an aha moment and go, right. oh, I actually learned something. It actually, reading the re- review actually enhanced my experience of seeing that show. Mm-hmm. I think you created a, a, a greater service. So when I went in, I feel like my, you know all my sensors were on from the moment I got out of my car. You know, you try to take take in what's happening in the lobby. You know, you take into account the atmospheric elements of, of that because I think that's all part of the live theater experience. Oh. And then you just have to be true and visceral to what happened to you on that, that night. One of the things that's most frustrating for readers was they would say, they would call me up and they would say, you know, I don't think I saw the same show as you did. Right. And I'll say, well, unless you went on January 12th for the matinee, we, you didn't see the same show yeah. that I did. And sometimes there might be a month in between. An example would be when I went to go see an August Wilson play by Shadow Theater Company, the African-American theater company in town, mm-hmm. uh, on opening night, wonderful actors. They were not ready. They were struggling with lines. Ah. A play that should be three hours long was about three and a half hours long. And part of the thing is theater companies wanted you there on opening weekend because if you're only running three or four weeks, you have to get there there early so that your review comes out so that it can actually do some good. Yeah. It does them no good for you to show up on the final weekend. Right. But you have to review the show that you saw. And and I had to be honest. I had to be viscerally honest. Without being cruel or personal, I just had to say what my experience was. And my experience was they weren't ready. Right. So then when I was getting phone calls a month later, I would so somebody would say, you say right here in, here in in your review that this play ran three hours and 32 minutes. And right. I clocked it and it came in at two hours and 55 minutes. And I say, well... That means they've shaped some time. They shaped some time. <laughs> that does not in any way discount 
right. the experience that I had, and it made me feel better for them that they had gotten it together and that people were having a better experience of it at the end. Sure. But I never had this argument that was like, my, my experience necessarily has to match yours in any way, shape, or form. Right. So you never came into it with like the... Someone might say, like, the idea is that the, I make sure as a critic that, I, you know, if the director's vision was this, did, did they achieve it? And then I kind of graded off of that. But you kind of came in a bit more malleable. Yeah, and, um, and it's a funny thing when you say what the director's vision is because I don't think we're supposed to know what the uh, director's vision is. I think you have, you can, you, you know, you're not obligated to read the director's notes. Right. Um, but I do believe that you are always thinking about what may I presume was the objective here. Right. And... And then you just go with your gut. You just think, did, did they take you somewhere? Did they tell a good story? Did they transport you? Did you, did you feel something deep inside? Usually if that's the case, it's a very successful production. If I can't tell you what the director's vision is after the end of the show, mm-hmm. I would say there's probably something wrong with me, but there's probably something wrong with, with the production as well. Right. Um, so switching tack, because this is a selfish podcast. Hey, um, let's talk about you. Yeah. Uh, basically, of all the best actors that you've seen and reviewed, and you've mm-hmm. seen a lot of shows and a lot of different size houses, equity, non-equity, of the best actors you've seen, what are the commonalities between them so that I can steal that? <laughs> there's there's one, Michael, and I think it's the, it, the one commonality is that I might have seen these actors 10, 12 in your case, probably 16, 17 times by now. Sure. To me, the mark of a good actor is that within within very short order of me sitting down in the play beginning, I want to completely forget that you are Michael Bouchard on a stage doing a, you know, a, a role where the primary thinking thing I'm thinking is, oh, this is great for Michael because it's outside his comfort zone and he's getting a challenge and I'm happy for Michael that he gets to do this play. But if you're always Michael Bouchard to me mm-hmm. and not the character in the play, something hasn't completely transported me. Yeah. And I'm a tougher customer Absolutely. than the, the other people because the other people haven't seen you 16 times, except in Creed. Right. But the other people haven't seen you as often, so they haven't got, a, they haven't got anything stuck in their head about who you are. Right. Um, but when I, and I try to, believe me, it's not that hard for me to become a blank slate. <laughs> sort of my, sort of my <laughs> natural condition. It's my default mode. <laughs> But yeah, you know, I've one time when I was at the post, we were, you know, I was uncomfortable about this, but my editor um, basically assigned each of us to say X person is one of my favorite actors, uh, painters, wow. musicians. Yeah. But you know what? I looked at, at everything I did, and I just said I, I didn't say I didn't say my favorite, but I picked Bill Hahn, mm-hmm. and part of the reason that I picked uh, Bill Hahn is because I always know that he what he scares me, <laughs> and then he charms me. You know, when he's playing the killer in Frozen. I'm not sitting there going, Bill Hahn just got the role of a lifetime, right. you know, or that he's totally typecast because I don't think he's a serial killer <laughs> of children. But I completely believed that if I ran into that man on the street, that he that he might kill me. Right. And I was not for that moment thinking it was Bill Hahn, and that's when I knew that it was a brilliant performance in my I see in my judgment. So you, you sort of put on the side that the an actor is. I guess, flexibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because let's be honest. I mean, we've all got our, our bag of tricks. Uh, yeah. I've got my writing tricks that I, you know, people say I, I fall back on puns or whatever just to keep <laughs> it light or whatever. And and there's probably some truth to that. And I think there are actors who I've seen enough in town where I can go, that's either a brilliantly executed move or that's what they go to every time. Right. And that's what makes me sort of, you know, ne- I can never be like every other audience member. Right. But when I see somebody and I just and I, and I feel like they've done something like I've never seen before, that's 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 usually when I'm most blown away. Tell me something that most actors 
do not know about critics? What's um, something that would be unexpected to them? Well, I hate to say this because I, I don't think it's necessarily true in all cases. We have different kinds of critics in Denver and in every city. There are advocacy critics who you can count on to give you a positive notice no matter what you do. Right. And, and there's a place in the theater ecology for those kinds of writers. Mm-hmm. But I think if you're talking about the past life where we had full-time critics who were dedicated specifically to theater for daily newspapers, of which, scarily enough, I can say I was the last one. You know, right. um, my, my successor, Lisa Kennedy, is one of my favorite writers in the world, but she's doing two beats. Right. But I think if you look at that kind of critic, the people, the critic that people just presume they need to be afraid of, which is silly to me. Uh-huh. But I think that they would say that there's a presumption that we are more working to establish some sort of reputation for ourselves at the expense of those uh-huh. of those in the community. And I had to work really, really hard and, and through example over years, uh, using my position uh, for good right. um, in order to convince people that I'm not an asshole. Right. Well... <laughs> That's still a subjective thing. <laughs> Doing but, your best. But that I had the best interest of the theater community at heart. Right. It was really sweet for me in the first couple of years when people would come to me and they would say, they might have seen me speak at a panel and they would go, you're not the way I expected you to be at all. You seem like you might actually be somebody I might like. <laughs> You know, and it took th- doing things like the theater listings, which took me about 12 hours a week on Saturday mornings God, to do yeah. in order to do that as a service. All the things I was trying to do online with videos and podcasts and stuff like that. And people would just kind of go, you know, I think we might have deserved a more intellectual critic than you. People would tell me that all the time. But they would they would slowly come around to the idea and say, but you have the best interest of the theater community at, at heart. Right. And that always seemed to surprise people. Is there ever uh, a kosher, is it kosher ever, basically, mm-hmm. to um, contact a critic? Just for actors, let's say. Yeah. Every director in town will cringe when I say this, but I say yes, absolutely. Yeah. We're all part of the same community, not just theater community, but the community of Denver. Mm-hmm. And when I was sitting uh, behind the desk at the Denver Post, we put my phone number and my email address on every single review. And <clears throat> just as we put that on the end of every Denver Post story, and part of it was, if you want to ensure the survival of your of, of the newspaper industry, which is a whole different conversation, right. but you have to have made people feel like you're part of the same community and that you're you're not a Mitt Romney corporation. You are you are people in our community who've got kids in school and have you know we're all the same. So yes, if you want to talk to somebody about a story they've written in the paper, mm-hmm. you, there's the phone number. You, use it. And even though most of our job was at night, right. my boss asked all of us to try to keep office hours as much as possible so that he didn't want people to call up to be able to say, hey, I either loved your story or hated your story, right. and get voice message. They wanted there to be a voice at the other end of the line. So for, for five years or more, we I was at the office at you know, 8.30 or 9 o'clock every morning during cool. the work days. And being out until eleven thirty or twelve at night, right. and that and that was fine because, like my boss, I did feel like it was necessary for us to be able to have that dialogue. Right. Now the frustrating thing is, you know, the people who would call you at two o'clock in the morning and leave you a voice message because they knew you weren't going to be there and you couldn't right. have that conversation. <laughs> but but I enjoyed picking up the phone, hearing a hostile voice, and seeing if we couldn't come to some sort of rational common ground right. without people yelling at each other and calling each other names. Because you know what? It's our lives. Right. It's our hearts and it's our souls. But it is, let's keep it in proportion. And I loved it when people at the end would get, get to the end of a conversation and say, well, I still disagree with you, but thank you for having 
you know, for not taking the bait and not, right. not fighting over it. It was just like, it, I honestly believe this, Michael. If you're going to get up on that stage, mm-hmm. having put all that intellectual and emotional heart and soul into that, and, and not just for me, of course, but for thousands of, of audience members over the course of a run, me writing a review is not unlike you delivering a performance. I'm putting it out there. It's going to get printed in 600,000 papers. It's going right. to be available online. Every single person has a right to review my review for for its, you know, worth to them. Right. Just as much as I am in that exact same position doing that for you when you're when you're on the stage. So if right. somebody wants to call me up and say, "Hey, I think you really dropped the ball on this one," I might I might have to listen to them and, and see if I don't agree agree with them. Huh. The problem is when an actor calls up a critic and says, "Hey, um, you pointed out some things that were wrong with my performance, and I just want to tell you that I agree with you entirely. I fought with my director about that. I tried to let, make him go the other way. Your your review is a complete validation of what I said all along, and I'm going to take this as permission to change my performance. Oh. And I would sit there oh. and I would go, hey, it happened. It happened. And I, and I would say, you know, I, <laughs> we might be on the same page, but I, I am not your director. No. And not only does that affect your director, but you also have other actors in the show. Your show is open. Yeah, you know, show. I have no place in your creative process. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, to tack on the last bit, though, um, someone might think that there might be a conflict of interests between a reviewer reviewing one's friends, and it's kind of an impossibility if you're in the theater for so long and immersed in it that you wouldn't be friendly with a number of the right. people, but the idea of someone trying to get to know the critic better so that they get reviewed more positively. Right. I mean, it's a risk one must run, I suppose. Yeah, and you have to sort of take it on a critic-by-critic basis. Uh, for, for me personally, a lot of people don't know about me that I had performed and directed a lot of stuff in my previous life before I started working at the Denver Post. So there are a number of people I went to school with who had become prominent members of the local theater community. I can't do anything about the fact that I was already friends with a certain but small, but relatively small group of people. Right. But when I, when I became theater critic, I frustrated a lot of the people in my life because I said, this changes things. And I've now been gone from the Denver Post for almost three years. So a lot of the bonds that I've made uh, have been since I've left. I always appreciated it when people would invite me to parties and when people would say, well, come to this or that. Or, or let's just go have a beer. Mm-hmm. And my philosophy was, uh, was always, I don't do parties. I think that makes everybody uncomfortable. I never want to change the temperature in the room. Plus, I'm a social cripple. It all works out beautifully (laughs) for me not to go. Sure. And then weirdly, after I left, people were like, well, now you can come to my party. And I was like, oh, Jesus, I don't have an excuse. But that's different from, you know, an artistic director, somebody saying, you know, you can take one of two texts. You can call on the phone and you can try to start a fight, like I mentioned before. Right. Or you can call somebody like me up and say, I want to know you better because I, I want to have an opportunity to just... To, to be able to have a dialogue with you because based on the reviews of our theater company, clearly we're not passing your standard. And, right. I, and I, I only see what I can see in the reviews, so let's get a dialogue going. And I'd be like, well, this is going to be a really uncomfortable happy hour, but let's do it. Of right. course. Of course let's do it. Mm-hmm. Let's just go and, and let's talk these things through. Because the other thing, Michael, is that I took reporting of the beat like with my Sunday news notes, mm-hmm. very, very seriously, because what the, those were intended to do is to tell not just the theater community, but people who were casual readers of the entire paper, that we thought theater was an important beat like schools and like police and like the Broncos, and to be able to say, you deserve a home once every Sunday to say, this: these are the things that are happening in your beat, the th- right. that are news 
of it now because I'm a much more comfortable reporter than I am a critic. If I'm going to be reporting on the news of the beat, you have to have a different hat. The best reporters are those who have not alienated their entire community so that so much so that when something you hear that something's going on, you're going to get a world premiere of Angels of America or something like right. that or a yeah. local premiere. You have to have solid enough relationships with people that despite what you've written about with the review, when you call them up, they're going to talk to you. Right. And it took us it took a certain amount of assuaging in some ways to be able to to find where that line is. Mm-hmm. Like I made a point I never would date in the theater community. I wanted to make it as clean as possible so that I never wanted to give anybody a reason to offhand discount right. my place in the dialogue. Mm-hmm. And so the the social game was always was always very difficult and. And I'm I'm really glad that that's behind me because it was it was it could be a very lonely life when part of the reason I got into this this beat after working in sports for so long was because I knew that these were going to these were among the most interesting people to be with to have a conversation with to talk about philosophy talk about mm-hmm. life like you and I have done yeah. from time to time um, we couldn't have those conversations three years ago right. For one thing, you would never let it happen. That's true. I, think, <laughs> you know. I am one of those actors who tries to keep an adversarial relationship with <laughs> Crick. This one is one where I just kind of want your take on it, because I know actors will have their own take, but do you think actors should read reviews during a show? I think it's entirely up to them. Right. I No, honestly. I, would you find benefit to it, though? Could there be a possible benefit that you would see? Or Honestly, no. no? I mean, I... Here's the thing that that comes down to is that I I said from the very beginning maybe you know maybe it's too self-deprecating but I honestly believe it because I have cripplingly low self-esteem <laughs> but but I do I always said to people you know I am just another guy in the theater with the only difference is that I've got a notebook and I've got circulation now I did do due diligence you know I did when you know I did the research that was necessary I did suffer over my reviews I didn't do I didn't write anything just completely cavalierly so I, I felt like my responsibility was to remain intellectually invested, even if I were a normal citizen, I might have checked out at that point, right. that kind of thing. But essentially, when people would say, I had a, you know, I had a completely different take on this play, and I would say, great, let's talk about it. Right. It wasn't like, well, I'm right and you're wrong. I never said to anybody, I'm right and you're wrong. Mm-hmm. So essentially, there's a burden to being that person. Right. Who has to be the one who's like, you know, for my personal sensibilities, this was either the best play that I've seen all year or because and that was always great to be able to to be able to say that. Right. Um, I love doing ovation awards. I love being able to to, to bestow bouquets and, and glory onto the stuff that was really good. But people tended to remember only those that you would, you know, were tougher on. But. Ultimately, I would say it's just one guy's opinion. So ultimately, when uh, you're asking, do, do I think people should make a point of reading my reviews? I think that that would be, that would be me sort of uh, inferring any greater importance in the dialogue than, um, than anybody else. And so yeah. at the end of the run, you want to read it and then you want to talk about it. That's great. But just as I said before about not wanting to alter anybody's performance. Yeah. I'm one of those people where I don't I don't know what good it really serves any actor to be reading reviews while the run is going on, which points out a bigger point to me philosophically, which is that I'm not writing the reviews for the actors. I'm not I'm I'm, I'm writing them about the actors. I'm writing them about the entire experience, but I'm really writing those reviews for the edification of the readers at the Denver Post because they are the ones who have to make these tough economic decisions about saying, you know, it's $45 to go see this play, but I have no 
way of knowing whether it's worth anywhere near that much money. Right. And so they are looking to the Denver Post to be able to help them make these tough decisions, and that requires you to have a bar. Uh, it right. requires you to be consistent so that they can see over time that, oh, you've got a problem with David Mamet, but at least you're consi- consistent about it. Right. And I can know that, hey, I love David Mamet, so I'm not going to let that affect whether I go see it or not. But in general, you're fairly objective, and I've and I've trusted your opinion over the years. And so I'm going to go see this play because you gave it three stars or above. And I might skip this one because you only gave it two stars. And if those people found value in that, then I have serviced the people who I work for, right. who are the people who actually bought the paper. Right. Um, I, I don't want to muck up the artistic process. It is what it is. Okay. I mean, what is one common mistake actors make on stage too often that you think could be easily solved? I think actors need to get out of the rehearsal room and into the real world mm-hmm. because they think that if you're, especially if you're a busy actor, I think you've figured out over time how to be how to be effective and emotive on a stage and to and to wrap an audience around your little finger. But but I think it gets more and more artificial over time. When you're having a conversation on the stage, I still want it to sound like it's a conversation in real life. Right. You know, if you're in a bar, I want the I want it to feel like we're in a bar, not like we're in a theater. I think rehearsal periods are too are too short because of the economics of local theater here. I don't mm-hmm. think I don't think there's enough table work done. I certainly don't think that there's enough table work done on musicals. Um, right. I mean, if I could very little, if any, if I could wave a magic wand and be able to provide every theater that does a musical um, one more week of rehearsal and insist that it be spent at the table and not on singing and dancing, I think we'd start to see shockingly improved musicals. That would be my magic wand. Um, so I'll end on a very uh, simple question: uh, Where do you think the American theater is headed in the future? Well. I think that question is always changing, mm-hmm. and right now I'm I'm kind of hopeful about it. I think we went through a period of time in the American theater over the last maybe 30 years where it was just a bunch of playwrights who were trying to out-vicious each other. Yeah. I actually just wrote about this the, last week um, because I think it's changing. Two things two things have bothered me about the, the the growth of the American theater in or the tendency of the American theater over the last thirty years. One is that everybody's trying to be the next Sam Shepard, mm-hmm. um, which turned into trying to be the next uh, David Mamet, which turned into trying to be the next Neil Butte. Now it's Stephen Adley Geerges, who's the playwright of the of the moment, and they write these shockingly venal plays that explore how cruel we can be to each other, especially people who you would expect to love each other. Right. And there's a certain craft to that writing. Um, August Osage County, one of my, probably the best American play, certainly of this century, is certainly an example of just shocking, shocking cruelty within one family in the way that they can hurt each other. But I've been noticing, and it starts with the plays that were nominated for Best Play on Broadway last year. Mm-hmm. And, and I was looking at the, the vast majority of the plays that the Denver Center has been producing over the last year and a half. I look at plays like their world premiere of Benediction, the world premiere of, uh, of um, Appoggiatura, and you look at Shadowlands, and you look at um, The Legend of Georgia McBride, and I'm really heartened by the fact that there seems to be a recognition that audiences need to be challenge they need to be taken out of their comfort zone but i think primarily we go to theater for very different reasons and one of those reasons is to feel a little bit of hope feel families struggling through things together and not against each other 
And that's where you reach catharsis, and that's where you can feel some hope for our world through theater, too. That's one of its purposes as well. Right now, it's, it's no, it, it seems to be no longer uncool to write a nice play. Uh-huh. Because writing a nice play, in, you know, 10 years ago wouldn't have gotten you anywhere. But thanks to people like Annie Baker, it's now becoming cool to be, to, to be writing plays that are just lovely. Right. I'm ready for that. I'm ready for a good stretch of lovely. I think, I think most of America probably is, yeah. John Moore, thank yes. you very much. <laughs> thank you, Michael. We've had a long conversation. You haven't yawned once. And you're still awake. Right? And that, that you've only drank half your vodka. Most of the vodka's good. <laughs> and thanks to all of you for listening. I would like to once again thank John Moore for being a super guest, and not at all socially awkward, and that the theme music for the Tommy Knocker Tapes is generously provided by the band Forebear. So if you like what you hear, you can find more of them at forebear.la. 